and exercise and word association. Now, this isn't complicated at all. What I want to do is I want to say actually a name. I'm going to give you a name, and collectively, I would like for you as a congregation to respond at one time and just say the first thing that comes to mind. Very simple, okay? Your participation is very important on this. So if you don't respond, then this won't work, but I know you will. All right. Noah and the ark. Good, good. Daniel and the lion's den. Good. David and Mephibosheth. Good. <laughs> David and Mephibosheth? David, I know, but who is this guy? Mephibosheth. I, the, the truth is that the Old Testament tells us a lot about King David and the personal relationships that he had with individuals. If you can call that battle with Goliath a relationship, then that's sort of where David just kind of comes to the scene. He, he becomes the focus of the Old Testament. And of course, we know that he was eventually anointed as a king of Israel. And that's where he really made a name for himself, or maybe I should say where the Lord really promoted David to this level of recognition. Well, before David became king, between the time that he was anointed and the time that he assumed the throne, there were lots of days and weeks that passed in there. And when you read through the Old Testament, you discover that David literally had to run for his life. Do you remember that? Israel's first king was Saul. Saul passes off the scene and then David becomes the king. But in that time of transition, it was a very, very difficult time for David. You recall that uh, Saul actually threw spears at David and tried to take his life. There were times that uh, Saul put out words about David and, and uh, put a bounty on his head. And you read that and you discover that there were actually times that David could have killed Saul, but chose not to. In his own words, he said, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. It says a lot about David. But this, this conflict, uh, this, this, this turbulent phase in David's life represents the kind of life that kings lived in that day all over the ancient world kings lived day in day out with this sense of insecurity and I don't know whether you've discovered it or not but insecurity can make you really mean 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 spirited now I know that some people are just born in the accusative case and the kickative mood but it seems that some people are just much better at it than others, right? You know anybody like that? Just mean? I heard about a guy who was walking along the shore of a remote uh, island and he stumbled across this thing in the sand. He looked down, it was a, an artifact of sorts just sort of sticking out of the sand there. And he reached down and pulled it out and it was an urn. You know where I'm headed, right? As he brushed it off, a genie popped out and thanked the man for releasing him from all these years of bondage and that urn and said, as a result of your kindness to me, I will bestow one wish to you. 
So what would you wish? But before you tell me what you would wish, I want you to know that whatever you ask for, your mother-in-law gets twice as much. Man said, I don't understand. He said, well, let me explain it to you. If you ask for a million dollars, your mother-in-law is going to get $2 million. If you ask for a house of 10,000 square feet, your mother-in-law is going to get a house of 20,000 square feet. So what is your wish? There's a time limit here. Tell me, what is your wish? The man thought for a moment, and then he said, I got it. I wish that you would scare me half to death. Now, I don't know about you, that's just mean, right? <laughs> mean. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Think about the fact that kings had to live wondering who was going to come and wage war against them, who would come and want to take their place. Kings going to bed at night wondering, would that have been the last day that they would rule and reign on that throne? That is the scene in which we read our scripture this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9, look at verse 3. Look at what it says. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul? Stop there. You see, when a king asked this kind of question, usually people knew what was coming. He's wanting to know, Does Saul have any descendants out there that I need to take care of? Because it was not uncommon in that day for them to send a mercenary, you know, like a Navy SEAL, somebody out to take them out to kill them. Because it was a common practice in that day that if there was a descendant of a preceding king, that, that, that descendant might say, you know, I, I deserve an opportunity to rule. My, my father, my grandfather ruled, and I want to go and assume that leadership position because that was given to our family first. Without taking any consideration whatsoever that it was the Lord who anointed Samuel the prophet or, or, or told Samuel the prophet to anoint David, it was the idea of that belongs to me. And David knew that. Everybody knew that. But read the verse. David says, Is there not someone from the house of Saul, look at this, to whom I may show the kindness of God? Now, I'll tell you something, folks. When, when David asked that question, it surprised everybody. Because they thought he was going to ask, Is there anybody out there I need to be concerned about? Is there anybody I need to make sure that I protect myself from? I need to put up a defense there. But David says, is there anybody I can show kindness to? You know what's interesting? That word kindness that's in this translation, New American Standard, it's a Hebrew word which we can also translate favor or grace. Do you remember the story of Noah? How it told us in the book of Genesis that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And I told you that we can actually translate the word favor there as grace, same word. David said, I, I, there's somebody I can surely show kindness to. Now, who is it? And so they ponder the question of the king, and then, then look at what it says. And Ziba, that's a servant who was actually a servant to Saul, said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. 
Then the king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. This story of David and the way that he reached out to a young man by the name of Mephibosheth is actually a picture of the way that God transcends all time and space to come to you and me and invite us to be a part of his family. Two simple images I want to point out to you this morning. The first is that Mephibosheth represents you and me. Mephibosheth represents every single person who is born into this world. And he does so in three ways. First of all, he was born into the wrong family. If he'd have been a descendant of David, there would have been no concern here. There wouldn't have even been an opportunity for David to reach out to him in this way because he would have already been a part of David's family. But David just sort of took the initiative to do that and say, I want to invite you in and I'm going to do some things for you and I want to make you a part of my family. But David had to reach beyond his own lineage. He had to reach beyond his own blood kinship in order to do that. Do you realize that that is what God has done for you and me? Have you ever thought about how unlike us God is? I mean, He's just that way. There is no other one being, no other presence, no other entity, no other thing greater than God. He's unlike you and me because God is good at reaching beyond himself to invite others into his fold and into his family. The the Bible says that we have been born of the seed of Adam. We read about that in the book of Romans. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. They are our family. They are perpetrators of the human race. And as a result, we've all been born into the wrong family. And we've all fallen short, really, of what God desires us to be. So Mephibosheth represents us in that way. But the second thing I want you to see is that he was also living in the wrong place. He had distanced himself from the king. Where was he living? Do you read it there in the scripture? He was living in a place called Lodibar. Do any of you know where Lodibar is? It's in Rankin County. I'm not kidding you. It's it's in Rankin County. Uh, There's actually a Methodist church in Rankin County named Lodibar Methodist Church. The word Lodibar comes from two Hebrew words, low meaning no or none, and Debar meaning green pasture. Mephibosheth was living in a place where that was barren. There were no animals populating the hills there that could graze in the pastures. There, there were no crops being grown there. 
Now, now, I want to ask you a question. Why was he living in Lodabar? Lodabar was a great distance from where David was on his throne. David lived in Jerusalem. David lived at the, 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 the citadel of Israel. He, he lived in, in, the, in the place, the palace, where everybody wanted to be in and around the place because it, it had lots of lush pasture land there. But Lodabar was just the opposite. You see, Mephibosheth was living in a place where he didn't want anybody to find him. Actually, he was living in a place where he thought, nobody would ever think to look for me here. And the truth of the matter is that he feared the king. He knew who he was. He knew he was a descendant of Saul. He knew that there was a possibility that somebody could come looking for him and want to take his life to prevent him from ever wanting to assume the throne of the king. And so he was living there trying to avoid anybody ever noticing him, but he lived in fear of King David. Do you know anybody that lives in fear of God? I do. You do too. Because there are a lot of people walking around in this world who think that God's only purpose in existing is to issue judgment and to display His wrath at people who are vile and vulgar and evil. And listen, God does have a wrathful side. God does issue judgment for those who do not live in obedience to Him. We we know that. We understand that. But one of the most freeing concepts that you can ever wrap your mind around is the fact that the wrath of God is laced with the love of God. And it is the love of God that motivates him to issue blessings to those who are obedient and consequences to those who are disobedient. You and I do not have to live in fear of God. Now understand this. Fear is healthy. I want my grandson to fear walking up to the wall and sticking his finger in a light socket. I want him to be afraid of what will happen if he does that. I want children to be afraid of what might happen if they, they, you know, get into a wrong relationship with someone online. Cybersecurity is a big thing these days, right? We want our children to be mindful and use wisdom when it comes to those resources that are available to them. Fear is good in some ways. The Bible even says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When you understand who God is and you fear Him in the right way, there is a healthy sense in which you are respecting who God is. But we don't live in fear of Him. If I had to wake up every day fearful that God was going to zap me, then I don't know that I would ever get out of the bed. I want to wake up in the morning with the understanding that God and I are in a relationship where there is a friendly relationship, where where He loves me and I love Him, and I can enjoy His presence. See, Mephibosheth wasn't doing that. Mephibosheth was living there, distanced from the king. So Mephibosheth represents you and me. But quickly, let me make the transition here and show you that David represents Jesus. And David represents the invitation that comes from Jesus for you and me to be a part 
of God's family. The first thing that David does is I think that he issues forgiveness to Mephibosheth. Forgiveness of a sense of him saying, I want you to know that I'm not concerned about you retaliating against me. And I, I want you to know that all of the things that your grandfather did in seeking to kill me, I've forgiven. And I don't hold them against you. And I want you to be close. And I want you to be a part of what goes on here in the palace on a daily basis. Now continue the reading with me, if you would, at verse 9. Look at what happens is. The king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. He's referring to Mephibosheth. His master, by the way, would have been Jonathan. Or Saul, excuse me. And Jonathan would have uh, been the father of Mephibosheth. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, look at this, shall eat at my table regularly. And then look down at the end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Forgiveness. What is the greatest need of all mankind? Isn't it forgiveness? You say, well, I thought it was eradication of disease or sickness. Well, that's important. What about world peace? If we voted this morning, some of you may say, I think the world needs peace more than anything else. Well, the truth is the world has a sin problem. And the sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what puts people at Lodibar where they're distanced from Him and live out of fear from God. And God says, I want to span the distance there. I want them to know that I can and will forgive them and bring them into a relationship that is healthy and positive and whole. And how did David do it? Do you remember it there in the verse? He says to Mephibosheth, because of your father. Well, do you remember the relationship that David had with Jonathan? It was such a close-knitted, a bonded relationship there. And, and that bond was torn when Saul recognized David as the one who would be the next king and said, I don't want to have anything to do with him, and sought to kill him. Matter of fact, the Bible describes it as breaking Jonathan and David's heart because they knew that they could be friends no longer. And here it is, David is reaching out to him and saying, because of Jonathan, I want to do this, and I want you to know that forgiveness is yours. When Jesus looks at you and me and we come to him, by the way, Mephibosheth could have come to David and said, I need a handout. I'm living down here in a barren land. I have no way to eat food. I can't grow crops. I can't have any cattle. I can't do anything like that. I, I, I need an assistance here. He, he didn't do that. David took the initiative. Can I remind you that God takes your initiative? To find you and me. He's the one who said, I know that when I put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they're going to sin and every person who lives after them is going to sin. But yet I know how I'm going to redeem the world and I will do it myself. I will take the initiative to do it. I will send my only begotten son to the cross. And his blood is what will cover the sins of all humanity. God took the initiative to do that. Understand this. Here's the difference between religion and the Christian faith. Religion is all about how man seeking God. The Christian faith is all about how God is seeking man. 
coming to you and me and saying, I love you. I want you to be a part of this relationship. And I've made a way for it to happen. I've made a way for the forgiveness to be extended if only you'll accept it. So the first thing that he did was he gave him forgiveness. The second thing that he gave him was fortune. He said, all that belonged to Saul, now I'm giving to you. Think about it. David probably had property of his own that was attached to his name when he became king. All of the property that Saul had now belonged to David. And there were probably a section of the land there where some of Saul's descendants were actually living. There was probably land there that was fertile, where crops could grow. There were places where sheep and cattle could be raised. And David says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to give that to uh, David says, I'm going to give that to Mephibosheth. Now, obviously, Mephibosheth was crippled, and he couldn't cultivate the land. And so David says to Ziba, I'm going to let you do it for him. Fortune. Do you realize that we're co-heirs with Jesus? Do you realize that all that belongs to him belongs to you and me? Do you realize the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, all and they that dwell therein? Do you realize that it says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and it's just implied that he owns the hills too? I mean, do you get that? Do you understand that? If ever there's a day where you just wake up and you've got the mully grubbies, you know what I'm talking about? And you just down on yourself saying, oh, little old me and how little I have, I want you to wake up and realize all that is available to you. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul wrote to that church and he said, I pray that your eyes may be opened, that you may see all the blessings that God has bestowed upon you. And that's my prayer for you this morning. That's the prayer I prayed for myself today. God, open our eyes that we may see you and that we may see all that is available to us. Now, he gave him forgiveness, he gave him fortune, and now he says, I want you to be a part of my family. As I'm preaching along here, by the way, I preach without notes. Do you figure that out? Some of you are saying, yeah, and you need to use some every now and then. Every now and then I do. Somebody asked me one time, said, what do you do when you forget what you're supposed to say? I, and this is true. I said, I just keep preaching until I remember it. I left out a third point in the way that Mephibosheth represents you and me, and I'm going to come back here and include it in the last part of the message. Can I do that? Mephibosheth was crippled from a fall. That was not his fault. If you go back a few chapters in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning at about verse 4, here's what you find. Mephibosheth was five years old. He was a young child. And the Bible says that news came to the household where he was that his father Jonathan and grandfather Saul had died in battle. Now when that news came, fear gripped that house. And they began to think that, you know, whoever is becoming the next king, they're going to seek us out and they will kill everybody. You see, that's the way kings normally responded. Remember, David surprised everybody by wanting to reach out and do something favorable for Mephibosheth. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that the, the nanny, the nursemaid, when she got word that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, 
she instinctively reached out for Mephibosheth and wanted to protect him and pull him in her arms and began to run. And when she started running, she tripped and fell and broke his legs. Now, Mephibosheth had no control over that situation. But as a result of the fall, his legs were broken and he was maimed for life. You and I have been maimed for life when you read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit in the garden. Matter of fact, theologians refer to that as the fall of man. And it's a beautiful picture here of him saying to Mephibosheth, I know that you were born in the wrong family. I know that you suffered from a fall and it's maimed you for life. I know that you've been distanced from me, but I want you to come and be a part of my family. So he gave him forgiveness, he gave him fortune, and he made him a part of his family. We can only imagine what that was like. For David to announce to everybody in the palace and anybody else who needed to know it, he is my adopted son. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but three different times here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David made a point to say, whether it's Mephibosheth or to Ziba or to everybody else, he's going to eat at my table regularly. I'll tell you something, folks. That was no ordinary table. That was a special table because that was the king's table. You know, to this day, today, if we were to drive to Pontotoc, Mississippi, now we'd have to give her a little bit of advance notice for this to come true, but I guarantee you that if my mother prepared a meal and knew we were coming, that'd probably be a couple of different meats there, fried chicken. Got her son who's a preacher. He's been raised on fried chicken. We can feed him chicken. We'll probably have some chicken up there, you think, in a minute. What? Look. I know on Sunday morning all you're thinking about is food. We might as well talk about it. Right? So we're going to have a couple of meats. There'd be probably four or five different vegetables there, maybe a couple of different kinds of bread with rolls or cornbread or Mexican cornbread if she was really feeling feisty that morning. You know what I mean? And desserts. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes two, sometimes three. Now, my mother is going to put all of that on the counter, and she's going to say, come help your plates, children. Come on, everybody get a plate. And there's not much here, but you're welcome to what we have. You ever heard that? You're looking at all this spread, and the hostess says, there ain't much there, but just help. Not much here. We could feed half the city upon the top. Just invite them in. We got enough food. Well, that's the way it was at David's table. All the meat, the lamb, you, you imagine the kind of lamb, whatever they cooked and served the king and they had all the grapes and the pomegranates and all the potatoes and all the different kinds of vegetables that they would have had there and the all you had to do was show up and sit down and be served and eat. Now can you imagine what that was like the first time for Mephibosheth? Can you imagine? I'm going to tell you something, folks. When the, when the king ate, it was a big deal because they would announce his family. David would come in first and he would take his place at the head of the table and oh, it would be set there. Probably candles would be lit and the finest silverware and all would be laid out there. And somebody would say, and now the king's firstborn, Absalom, 
or Amnon, excuse me, Amnon comes in. And Amnon comes in, and boy, everybody looks at Amnon. Had Amnon not messed up a little bit, he would have probably become the next king, remember? But Amnon comes in, and everybody's like, oh, boy, he had so much promise about him. Amnon takes his seat at the table. And then who was next? Solomon. Remember Solomon? I, now, now I, I, I have the picture of Solomon always walking around with a scroll in his hand, you know? He's the wisest one who's ever lived. So he's walking around with a scroll, and, and, and forgive me, but he's got readers. He's got readers, and he's walking around with a scroll. Here comes Solomon, the next son of David, and he takes his place, Solomon. You know, just, just not impressed with the pomp and circumstance of the king. And so while everybody else is coming in, he's, he's, he's memorizing Psalm 121. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You knew that, didn't you? He... Or, he uh, He's, he's memorizing Psalm 119. And then comes Absalom. Long, curly hair. He walks in and everybody just swoons. Oh boy, he is so beautiful. He's so handsome. He takes his plate. And ordinarily people think, it's time to eat. King boys are here. Let's dig in. But David rises and says, but yet there's another. Everybody looks around and all of a sudden they realize there's an empty place setting. And the king says, and I want to introduce to you today my adopted son, Mephibosheth. And from down the hall, you can only imagine what that was like on crutches. Clop, clop, shh. Clop, clop, shh. Clop, clop, shh. You hear the crutches and the shuffling of his feet. Clop, clop, shh. Clop, clop, shh. Until he gets to his place and everybody's looking and said, why in the world did David reach out to this cripple? He can't do anything for the king. He can't contribute in any way. What, what, he can't be a part of the army. He can't take up a shield or a sword or defend the throne. What, what in the world is he doing? And, and he gets to his place and just he throws down the crutches. And then he sits down on the chair and he just reaches over and pulls his knees under the table. And when he sits back straight up, everybody looks and says, hmm. He doesn't look any different than anybody else. You see, folks, everybody here's got baggage. We don't talk about it. We don't like to acknowledge it. We sure don't want to admit it in public. But everybody here is struggling in some way. And yet, you know what? Regardless of what you may think of me or I may think of you or you may think of somebody else here, every single one of us who goes by the name of Christian has a place at the Lord's table. And when the Lord looks at you and the Lord looks at me, He says we're all the same. We're just adopted children into His family. And we're all equal. And He invites us there. And He wants us to partake of what He's prepared for us. This morning, it is my privilege to invite you to a place at the table. 
to come be a part of God's family. Not because of anything that you've done or anything that I've done, but it's all because of Jesus. His perfect, only begotten Son who paved the way for you and me to have a place at the table. Do you know Him this morning? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? Will you celebrate that relationship that you have with Him? And when we come to that time of fellowship in just a few moments, as you gather around the table, would you be mindful that we're all sinners saved by grace? Stand with me this morning. Father, how much we thank you for sending Jesus to the cross, for him dying in our place, for him being willing to do what we cannot do. Lord, you took the initiative to invite us to be a part of your family. I, I pray that we have responded to that invitation and we've accepted Christ. But Lord, if there's any person here that has not, I pray that you would convince them of the need to trust Him as Savior this morning. I pray that you'd give them the courage and the freedom to come forward as we give this invitation on your behalf. Lord, if there are Christians here looking for a church home, because your Spirit would lead them, let them come to unite with our church family. and Use what gifts and abilities they have so that your church may be strengthened. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake.